Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we ask again, um, as we are considering your word together, that you would break through uh, whatever distractions or whatever hardness of heart or anything that stands in the way of us hearing you because your word is life. And so we ask that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word that together we, your church, might more and more become the beautiful community you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm pretty excited because we are now starting this new series on the Gospel of Matthew. And um, I've been spending a lot of time in Matthew over the last few weeks, and it's been a real delight. And so I'm really looking forward to us kind of digging in together, and especially our our focus will be on seeking to kind of grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus. But this morning, I'm actually, we're not going to be starting by even focusing on the story of Jesus, although of course he will come in fairly quickly. We're going to be focusing on John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this in looking at the Gospels, but I think it's significant that John is at the beginning of the story of Jesus in all four Gospels. That might not seem at all unusual or weird until you realize that there are a lot of things that are not in all four Gospels. For example, neither John nor Mark have the story of Jesus' birth. Only Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount. Only Luke has the story of the Good Samaritan. Every gospel writer has to be selective because, as John reminds us, Jesus did so many things that there's nothing that could contain all of the things that Jesus did. And yet every single gospel writer feels like even though it's about Jesus that they're telling a story, they have to spend some time near the very beginning telling us about John. Which tells us, I think, that we can't actually understand the story of Jesus without John. They have to go together. And and our passage, actually, as it begins, explains why that is. When when Matthew tells us that John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That that John's role is to prepare. There's a sense here that we're being told that we won't actually be ready to hear Jesus. That we won't be ready to respond to him rightly unless John first does his work of preparation in our hearts. It's it's almost like our hearts are this dense, hard soil. And John is the plow that needs to go through and turn things upside down to ready ourselves so that Jesus is able to, to plant that seed that is good in our soul. John comes in the beginning of every gospel because we need to be prepared so that we can hear Jesus rightly. And so this morning, if our goal this coming year is to hear Jesus rightly, to be his apprentice, to grow in that apprenticeship, it is right for us to begin with this preparing Sunday, with this time of of spending time with John the Baptist and allowing him to do his work of turning up the soil and leading us to repentance. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to consider two things about John as we see him in this passage. To consider his message and to consider his method. So first, his message. John the Baptist's message is a remarkably hopeful message. He says, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven, we should know, we're going to be hearing this phrase a lot in Matthew. I mean, already we're told this is what summarizes John's message. And if we were to skip ahead to chapter 4, when Jesus' message, as he begins his preaching ministry, is summarized, it's, it says, and Jesus went preaching saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message. When Jesus sends the disciples out in chapter 10, he says, tell everyone, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And every time that Jesus is talking to his disciples, explaining to his disciples their ministry, he tells them about the kingdom of heaven. It is at the very heart, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes it's the kingdom of God, lies at the very heart of the gospel of Matthew. And it is so big and so significant, there's no way in one week we could, we could really define it well. So let me just begin by saying this. That phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is speaking of a promise that, has, that is being fulfilled. I wonder, um, those of you who were with us, uh, do you remember just a few months ago when we were still in Isaiah? I wonder if you remember these words that God spoke when he said, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. It is a promise saying, I am going to take my people and make them righteous and just and good. And it goes on, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name from the mouth the Lord will give. You will be beautiful, and the nations will see you, and they will recognize my glory as I give you this new name. And then it says, you shall no more be termed forsaken. Because that is how God's people felt. They felt forsaken. You might remember they were being humbled. They were punished. They were in a spiritual wilderness. But it says, you will no more be termed forsaken, but you shall be called my delight is in her, for the Lord delights in you. There will come a day where you will be absolutely convinced of my love for you. This promise from Isaiah, this is the promise of the kingdom of heaven. There will come a day where I will transform you and make you righteous and beautiful and through you the world will be saved and you will know my love. Do you remember that? Do you remember, now we're talking way back in January, that, that, that glorious time where the only time you needed to wear a mask was if it was cold outside. I know it seems way far back, but in January, do you remember in Isaiah 40 speaks of how this Promise will begin to be fulfilled when a voice is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Do you remember? Do you remember how God not only says, this is what's going to happen, he says, and here's how I'm going to do it. I am going to send my servant. My servant, behold my servant, he says in chapter 42, I will put my, my servant whom I have chosen and whom I take great delight, I will put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. Here's how I'm going to establish this kingdom of heaven by sending my servant and he will bring it about. Do you remember that? Well, John absolutely remembered these things because John understood, as it tells us right here at the beginning of our passage, that he was that voice that voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing. And so this is why when he, pray, when he preaches, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he knows I am the kingdom starter. 
I am the one who is at the very beginning of these promises. Can you imagine knowing this? Knowing as you're growing up, at some point realizing you are the one sent by God to begin this thing that the world, that Israel has been waiting for for centuries. It's, it's now. It's, it's coming, John says. This, this glorious promise is, is about to happen. And then when you get to the end of our passage, when you have Jesus being baptized, Jesus who is choosing to identify with his people, joining with them in their repentance, though he has nothing to repent of personally, what happens after he steps out of the water? It says, the Spirit comes upon him, and the voice of God comes from the heavens saying, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And if you're at all remembering Isaiah, you're supposed to recognize this is the servant. Remember, behold my servant with whom I am well pleased. I will place my spirit upon him. Here is the servant that God has said is going to come to bring about his kingdom. And so, of course, when Jesus starts preaching, he preaches, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. It is right around the corner. Get ready for it. And that message will continue throughout Jesus' life until after his death and resurrection, that message changes just a bit. At the very end of Matthew, we hear Jesus saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now that Jesus has conquered sin and death, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, the kingdom is now because I am the king and now this kingdom of heaven is breaking in to this world. We won't always see it. It's probably not so much in the news. But if we are looking for it, and if we know what to look for, even now in our day, there are different signs, different moments where, where the, there is this new power, this new force at work, as Christ, through his spirit, is establishing his kingdom. We see it every time someone who is hopeless and in despair hears the gospel and a light comes on and suddenly their life means something different and there is joy where there wasn't before. That's the kingdom. We, we see it when, when you have people who are proud and stubborn, refusing to admit the wrong until suddenly they recognize who they are before Jesus and the Spirit leads them to repentance and they acknowledge their wrongdoing and they confess it before others and they change. That's the power of the kingdom. We see it as, as communities are formed where people who are different from each other are yet committed to loving each other because of, because of Christ, where where they are willing to partner together to give of their treasure, to give of their time to serve the world, that is the kingdom at work. And, and though it is sometimes hard for us to see, it is real. And it is powerful as God is bringing about his beautiful kingdom of heaven. We will not ever experience it fully until Christ's return, but it is breaking through. And I want to just pause for a moment and just reflect on how good that news actually is. That there is God at work, that Christ is at work establishing his kingdom. This week I was getting my hair cut and um, 
And Barbara said, I can't wait for 2020 to be over. And I feel like I've heard people say that all the time, which I totally get. At the same time, it is kind of weird. There's kind of this sense that, that this 2020 is a cursed year, and the moment it's January 1st, like, everything will be okay, when we know that isn't true. And part of the reason we know that isn't true is what's made this year so hard is not just COVID. It's that even as that has been happening, there has been an exposing of the failings of people. The, the failure to keep the disease contained. The failure for us to be united as we're trying to face it together. The failure of the justice system to be able to care for the most oppressed. The failure of our nation to be able to protest without violence, but instead bring about destruction. Everywhere we look, it doesn't matter where we look, we see human failure. And, and it can be easy to despair because we go, if this is all that we're working with, what hope is there of fixing this? If, if this is what we see with human beings, how can we hope for something more? And, and the gospel that Jesus proclaims is that this isn't all that we're working with. That God actually is at work doing something often hidden, but incredibly powerful through Christ Jesus. And though we at times seem to be doing our best to subvert it, even though you have people in high positions in churches in scandal, even though you have schisms within churches, yet somehow the work of God keeps going forward. Because God is at work through Christ Jesus, establishing his kingdom, and that is where our hope lies. And let me just say, if we can just take a step back and think about it, if this is true, and I so deeply believe it is, is there anything more worthy of our hope and our energy and our lives than being a part of this work of God establishing the kingdom? I mean, this is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all of these things will be added to you. This is the message of John. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is right nearby. It's a message of hope. But we don't just see John's message, and perhaps it might even seem strange to us to speak of John as this really hopeful figure, because if you've ever spent time looking at John the Baptist in the Gospels, he doesn't come off as this really bright and cheery guy. And so I want to consider not just his message, but his method. We're told in verse 5 that it talks about people from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the region coming out to John. And I just, I want to just take a moment for us to try to imagine us being one of those people. Imagine you are heading out from Jerusalem because you've heard rumors of this really interesting guy who's preaching. Now, um, typical church planting advice if you're planting a church and you're trying to find a location is to find a well-trafficked area that people can easily see and get to john the baptist does the very opposite of that did you notice it says that he is out in the wilderness and it's not just in the wilderness i, I had to look because i don't know i've not been to the holy land i don't know exactly what it's like it says he's at the jordan and and the gospel of john actually tells us he's on the east side of the jordan jerusalem and all of israel was on the west side He's more than 20 miles away from Jerusalem. Which means if you want to go out, if you're in Jerusalem, if you want to hear John, you will have to wake up really early in the morning. Make sure you have many meals to bring with you. 
Then walk through largely desert for 20 miles. That's probably a six-hour journey. Before finally getting to a river that you'll have to find your way across. Maybe there's a raft, maybe you swim. I'm not sure, but there's some way that you'll have to get across. And then finally, you see this man. And it's not like he's in this really nice palatial area. He's just like under a tree with dirt all around and the river beside him. And, and, and what do you see when you finally, after this long, exhausting walk, come to John? Let's just say he doesn't look like the typical evangelical celebrity. He, you know, he doesn't have the nice haircut and the skinny jeans. His face is gaunt because he's just been eating whatever the land offers him. He's been eating crickets and honey. His clothing is not designer. It's, at some point, he found a camel. Maybe he slaughtered the camel or was already dead, and he used the hair to make his robe, and he used the hide to make a belt. His face was probably weathered from being outside. This is not, this is not a polished person. Everything about this whole experience of leaving Jerusalem to get to John, of seeing John as John's preaching, it just screams one word, wilderness. I mean, everything about this is wilderness. And I want us to actually ask ourselves, why? Because I don't think this is just kind of John trying to be on brand. You know, there is, there's something here that's very intentional. Because it was costly. To live out there was not easy. To expect people to come from wherever. This is not what you would do if you wanted to be in a position of influence. And yet John does it. And I think it's for a very specific reason. He's making a point. He, it's acting as a sign. Think for a moment about the last leader, prophet-like figure, who called people out into the wilderness. Think of Moses. If you remember, God's people were in Egypt, and, and Moses comes and he says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go into the wilderness. And he comes to his people and says, it's time for you to go into the wilderness. And actually, at first, they're resistant. And I suppose they can understand why, because... In their homes, they have beds, they have predictable supply of food with agriculture. These are their lives, they're busy with it. But Moses says, you can't stay here because as long as you're here, you are slaves. And as long as you are here, you will never experience the kingdom God has for you. You need to leave here and go into the wilderness. And as you go into the wilderness, you will experience waiting, you will experience dependence, you will need God's help in everything. And that's what happened with manna and whatnot. But until you leave this life, you will never be able to experience the life that God has for you. And I want to suggest that John is making that very same point. He is he's calling people out of their lives into the wilderness saying... Your lives that are consuming you, your lives that are making you busy, your lives that are making you comfortable, if you think you're home, you are wrong. The kingdom of heaven is, is coming. And, and for you to be able to receive that, you need to leave your homes because you're not in the promised land, you're in Egypt. You need to leave your home and go into the wilderness of waiting on God and depending on now, to be clear, I think John was doing this symbolically. He was not expecting a new commune to just all live in the wilderness with him. It was more talking about a posture. 
Because John understands the human tendency that we have this tendency to protect the lives that we have. To try to accumulate goods because those goods that we accumulate will make us feel more secure. To make our lives in this moment feel better. And John's saying, as much as that might be your tendency, I want you to do the opposite. I want you to let go of these things. And come to a place where you are waiting waiting for this promise to be fulfilled because it's at hand, where you're waiting on God in dependence because as long as you're holding tightly onto this life, you will never be able to receive the life that God has for you. And I want to suggest if we want to understand John in a nutshell, that is his message. When he is calling people to repent, he's calling people to stop protecting the lives they have and move into a posture of waiting independence as they look to God to give them the lives that God has for them. It is a calling to to turn away from complacency and to come to a place of waiting and longing and prayerfulness. And And that's what we see happening. There must be something about the way that John was preaching that had such conviction, such clarity about truth that we see people in verse 6, it says, they came and were baptized and confessed their sins. And, and that baptism is a sign of saying, what I was doing was wrong before. I need to be cleansed of it. I need a new start. And to confess their sins, they're acknowledging, I have been storing up for myself treasures on earth. And I need to be seeking treasures in heaven. That's, that's what John's ministry was bringing about as he's plowing the field. And yet not everyone is able to receive John's message. I talked about how, you know, John has this intensity about him. If you want to see an example of that intensity very clearly, well, let's just think about what happens next. So it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming out to meet with John. And you need to understand that, that in modern terms, we're saying these are the evangelical megachurch pastors. These are the archbishops. These are the best-selling Christian authors. These are the celebrities. As as people, a crowd who are around John, see this group coming with their entourage, there are murmurs. They know these guys by name. These are famous leaders. And there's probably even excitement. Hey, John is finally making it big time because if these guys give the stamp of approval, then he's made it. And so you can just imagine them coming and people all kind of murmuring and them kind of like waving, kind of knowing this kind of position of honor they're giving. And suddenly, from the middle of the crowd, there's this voice. You family of snakes, why are you here? If you think you're children of Abraham and you're secure, you need to understand that an axe is at the root of the tree and you are about to get chopped down. You need to repent. Can you imagine how awkward that moment would have felt if you're just watching and seeing these people who are so confident in themselves suddenly getting this like full blast attack. Can you imagine how rude that must have felt? But John isn't concerned about politeness or rudeness. He's concerned about actually loving truly. And he, he sees something that probably most people didn't at that time. And that is, it is entirely possible to be religious, and to be preserving all sorts of rituals and different things, while at the same time having a heart that just clings to this life and has no interest in the kingdom of heaven. 
And that was the problem with these Pharisees and Sadducees. Not just for themselves, but that is part of it. They themselves loved their positions of honor. They loved their lives. They wanted to preserve them. But even their teaching, the reason he's calling them poisonous snakes is because their teaching is infecting others and, and inviting them to just kind of get numbed by the religious rituals and no longer focus on what God is doing. And so John is saying, you need to let go of this. Because John knows this. John knows that as long as these religious leaders hold on tightly to the life they have, to the position they have, as long as they're trying to protect the status quo, they will never be able to hear Jesus. And he's right. Isn't that what we see? You know, one of the most remarkable things as you study Matthew is just you see Jesus doing miracle after miracle and saying extraordinary thing after extraordinary thing. And the Pharisees see it. It's not like they're only hearing about it. They see it. And, and they are seeing the fulfillment of prophecies. And what do they do? They reject him. Because as long as they are holding tightly onto the life that they have, and their arms are full of what they are protecting, they will never have space to receive the far better gift that God has for them in the kingdom. And this is what John's ministry is all about. This ministry of preparation is to call us and to warn us, and to lead us to repentance. Because as long as we're holding tightly onto the things that we're wanting to keep right now, we will never be able to take hold of what God has for us. That's what John's ministry of calling people to repent is. And so, as we conclude, if, if we are truly allowing John to do this work of preparation, we need to ask ourselves, what are you, what am I holding on to right now that is keeping you from taking hold of what God wants to give you? This, this, is, not, this is not something that's meant to, to move us towards thinking that anything that's enjoyable, anything that's fun is something we have to get rid of. That is not what we see. We see Jesus when he is on earth. He is enjoying parties. He eats. He drinks. He delights in things. It's not about that. It's about what consumes you. What focuses your attention? What makes it impossible for you to seek first the kingdom of God? This can get really practical really quickly. Because for the kingdom of heaven to get bigger in our life, other things have to get smaller. It's just how it has to be. If we desire to find strength and hope in the reality of this gospel, we need to have less attention given towards the news cycle that can so consume us. It's not possible for us to be more generous in the way we give towards the work of the kingdom unless we spend less elsewhere. We cannot give our lives in service to seeking the kingdom until we say no to other things that consume our lives. 
We cannot truly prioritize the spiritual development of our kids until we also make sacrifices about other things that are good for our kids. What, what is it that God is calling you to let go of in repentance so that you can take hold of what he has for you? This is not a call to denial for denial's sake. This is a call to deny what is not as good so that you can experience what is best. We, we begin with the words of John. Let's conclude actually with words that Jesus himself says that is very much in line with what John said. Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'd like to ask us just to take a minute or two of silence and allow us to kind of reflect before God and maybe where it's appropriate confess our sins. And then a couple minutes time I will lead us in prayer.